reading from the letter of James. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And then, after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately, the, uh, and, oh, and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for your word and spirit through which and through whom you reign over your world. Refresh our souls and give life to our mortal bodies. We humbly ask now that you would be with us and bless us this morning as we reflect on your scriptures and the gospel of your son so that we may hear your voice and be changed by your life-giving spirit for our own sake and for the sake of your world. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Picture the scene. Uh, Jesus has returned to town and word gets out that he's back. 
So crowds begin to seek him out at the house where he's staying, which presumably is the house of Peter and Andrew, which was likely a sort of home base for Jesus in this fishing village of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And picture in your mind, if you will, a small home of a Palestinian peasant. Uh, This would most likely be a one-room house with a flat roof. The roof was probably made of packed earth and thatch, laid over wooden rafters. And the house would have had an outside staircase to provide access to the roof, which if you live there, uh, is something you would have needed from time to time to fix your roof because it's made of packed dirt, right? So there's Jesus in this house. And by this time in the story, he has already done some healing miracles and his popularity is growing, as you might expect. And crowds are gathering to hear and see Jesus. They're filling the house and spilling outside through the door and beyond into the area outside the house as well. And that's when this little group shows up. It's four people carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. And these friends are bringing this man to see Jesus. But they can't get through because the crowd is blocking the way. There's an accessibility problem here. But these friends are not deterred. They carry this man on his stretcher up this outside staircase onto the flat roof, and they begin to dig a hole in the thatch. And you can imagine the mess they make, right? Dirt and debris would have been falling down onto the heads of Jesus and the other people who are inside this house. After all, this roof is made of dirt. Uh, But that doesn't deter or stop these friends. And when the hole in the roof is big enough, they lower their friend, this paralyzed man, on his stretcher, down between the beams of the roof and onto the floor of the house at the feet of Jesus, where he is. And that's when the real drama of the story begins, when Jesus sees the faith of these friends. And I want to just pause here before we go further into into the story uh, to think for just a moment about these four friends who brought this man to Jesus. How does this picture of spiritual friendship that we see displayed so beautifully here help us reflect on our own friendships in the community of faith? Both the kinds of friends that we need and the kinds of friends that others need us to be for them. Several things strike me about the friends in this story, and the first is this. Their faith is not just an individual thing, but their faith is for others too. It's not just for themselves. The faith that these four friends have in Jesus, it's not the kind of private faith that you keep to yourself and don't talk about at dinner parties, right? It's not the compartmentalized faith that stays in its little lane in your life uh, without disrupting and reorienting everything else. And it's not the consumeristic kind of faith that relates to God and the community of faith in terms of, like, quote, what I can get out of it when I go there. Their faith is something different. It's something more raw and authentic and beautiful. It's something that's so compelling to them that they share it with others effortlessly in a way that doesn't feel weird or off-putting. It feels natural. That's the first thing that strikes me about these friends, that their faith is not just for themselves. The second thing that strikes me about these friends and the story is that their faith is not just an intellectual thing, But their faith leads to this persistent action on behalf of their neighbor. 
These four friends are serious about helping this man. First of all, they don't pass him by on the street, right? When they see him uh, as they're headed to see Jesus, they don't just pass him by. They decide to invite him along. And then when bringing this man along becomes increasingly difficult, they don't quit. They don't get to the point where they say, hey, you know, sorry, but we've taken you as far as we can take you and you're on your own from here. They use the power that they have to help him. And they bring this man to Jesus Their faith becomes a means by which others meet God. Do you have friends like that in your life? Do you have friends who live authentically and generously in in relationship to both Jesus and to you, to other people? Friends who help you bear your burdens and even carry them with you into the presence of Jesus? Friends whose, source, whose faith is a source of life for you. Do you have friends like that? And are you a friend like that? Who are the people who have carried you? Just think about that for a minute. Who are the people in your life who have carried you? Just stop and give thanks for them. Who are the people in your life whom God has given you so that you would become that kind of friend to them. As I've been reflecting on this passage this week, I've been thinking about the double blessing of spiritual friendship, how our sweetest and most life-giving relationships um, are, these, are these ones in which we experience this giving and receiving that is intertwined in this deep and mysterious way, right? The blessing flows both ways, and sometimes it's almost difficult to tell where the giving begins and the receiving begins, right? Because it's like they happen together, Think about the paralyzed man and these four friends in this story. Obviously, this paralyzed man benefits from the benevolent action of these four friends on his behalf. But what's maybe less obvious, but no less powerful or real, is the way that these four friends benefit from their friendship with this man whom they carry. It's in their carrying him and their acting on his behalf that they become participants in what God is doing in this remarkable scene. And it's their friendship with this paralyzed man that they themselves begin to experience something of the mercy and power of Jesus that they otherwise would never have seen. I was talking about this text this week with a friend of mine who's a recovering addict who's been sober now for more than a decade. And he shared how this story made him think of this one particular day in his own struggle where he was, uh, he was feeling particularly weak. And he called his sponsor, and his sponsor wisely was able to tell that what my friend needed more than anything else was to kind of get out of himself, right? It was to move forward. And basically, he just told my friend, hey, just go help somebody, and he hung up the phone. Sometimes what we need is simply to move forward in becoming a friend, to others. We become healthier, more alive, more fully human when we become the kind of friend to others that this people in the story are to the paralyzed man. Sometimes all we really need is just to go help somebody. And all this has reminded me of, a, of the last book that Henry Nouwen wrote in his life. He actually didn't quite finish it before he died. Uh, but it's a book called Adam. God's beloved, in which Nowen tells the story of this severely disabled young man named Adam, uh, who was his friend. And Adam uh, was this young man, he couldn't speak, 
uh, he couldn't express affection in typical ways. His cognitive and motor functions were severely compromised uh, and limited. And Nowen met Adam and befriended him when, when Henry Nowen came to this community in Toronto called La Arche Daybreak, uh, which is a, a community of care uh, for people like Adam. And Nowen, uh, when Adam passed away at age 34, Nowen actually took a sabbatical break and wrote the majority of what would become this book, this beautiful reflection on Adam's life and death and how that friendship had been such a blessing to Nowen himself. And he writes this. I knew in a very profound place that Adam in some mysterious way had become an image of the living Christ for me, just as Jesus, when he lived on earth, was friend, teacher, and guide for his disciples. In and through Adam, I came to a truly new understanding of those relationships of Jesus, not just as they were lived long ago, but as Jesus desires to live them now with me and with us through the weakest and most vulnerable people. I think what now captures there so beautifully is the gift that God gives us in the people he gives us to love. It is the gift of encountering God through our joining with God in loving God's beloved, in befriending God's friends. It's a beautiful gift. And it's a gift that these four friends on the roof and this paralyzed man prompt us to notice this morning. Whom has God given you to love today, this week? Back to the story. The four friends dig a hole through the roof and they lower this man on his stretcher down to the floor of the house where Jesus is. And in verse 5, Mark tells us that when Jesus sees their faith, he says to this paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why does he say that? Doesn't that seem like a strange thing for Jesus to say in that moment? as this paralyzed man is lowered down into his presence. What's going on here? Well, it's important to know that in the thought world of first century Palestine, this man's paralysis would have been attributed to someone's sin. That's the way they would have thought about his condition. Either he did something wrong, or if this was like a birth defect, maybe his parents or someone in his life had done something to make him deserve this plight. And furthermore, this man's paralysis, it would have made him an outcast from the society, not only because of how his own physical limitations would have left him alienated from his environment, which would have been mostly inaccessible to him, but also because of the stigma of paralysis and the ways in which the social order of his day excluded people like him intentionally. So the idea that a paralytic would need to be forgiven and restored in order to be fully healed would not have seemed as strange to the people in this story or to Mark's original audience as it seems to us as we read it. But for Jesus to pronounce forgiveness like that would have been far more surprising to the people in this story and the original audience than it is to us. For Jesus to pronounce forgiveness like that was scandalous, shocking, jaw-dropping, outrageous. 
And that's actually the point of this story. More so than the beautiful picture of friendship we see from these friends on the roof, more than the miraculous event itself of Jesus healing the individual, the point of this story is that Jesus does it himself, the work of forgiveness and healing, without going through what everyone else at the time would have considered the proper channels. And that's why the scribes that we meet and we see in verses 6 and 7 are so upset. Because you see, they had established ways of dealing with forgiveness of sins in their society. And this is not how it was done. What Jesus does here is not how it was done. There was this whole religious and legal code that dealt with forgiveness of debts and sins, this system that involved the religious establishment, right? This establishment that's built on the twin pillars of law or Torah on one hand and the temple on the other. And it was operated by well-established gatekeepers, the religious people, the priestly elite You had the scribes who were like the lawyers who interpreted the law, and you had the priests who operated the temple. So in these areas of both um, debt forgiveness and purity, you had these gatekeepers who were part of the religious establishment, and Jesus here doesn't acknowledge them, right? The authority to do stuff like this, to forgive sins, is vested in the priestly class. They were seen as God's appointed brokers of forgiveness of sins. And so for this paralyzed man to be forgiven of his debt, his sins, and to be restored to society, it would have involved going through all these proper channels. First, the interpreters of the law would have needed to determine just exactly what his debt was and how he might repay it or be forgiven for it. And once that was established, the keepers of the temple would need to receive this man as a restored member of the worshiping community. That's what it would look like for this guy to go through the established systems and structures of the day. And Jesus disregards the whole thing. Like, he doesn't care. And that is an outrage to the scribes in the room. They just got sidestepped by Jesus, and they aren't happy about it. And this is a direct affront to their power and their position in society. And what do they do? They get defensive, don't they? They do what we all do when we feel threatened, right? Our survival instincts kick in. It's the fight or flight. Protect yourself. And if you can't escape the threat, eliminate it. And of course, this is one of the central messages of Mark's gospel to all of us, is that God's reign over the earth and over our lives, it is a threat to our various claims of authority and autonomy. But it is not a threat to us, to the earth. It is only a threat to our illusions of self-sufficiency and self-rule which choke out our life even as we cling to them for dear life. And what we'll see in the gospel is that it is always those who cling to their own power and prestige who find Jesus to be a threat who must be eliminated. And that's true both then and now. Yet it is those who surrender all of those things into God's hands who discover in Jesus the joy and peace that we can only access by receiving and resting upon him alone. This new life that God has planted in the earth in Jesus, it's not one that we get to control or tame. It's a life we can only receive as a gift 
and share with others. And this new life is exactly what the paralyzed man receives as his friends bring him into the presence of Jesus. And it's what the crowd delights in as they witness this glimpse of God's glorious kingdom of wholeness and goodness breaking into the midst of this broken world in which they live. And this new life is precisely what the scribes resist as they close themselves off to Jesus and cling to what they know. And it's what you and I do in all sorts of small and big ways when we close ourselves off to Jesus and choose instead to cling to some sense of self or some identity that we achieve or create for ourselves as we imagine ourselves to be self-governing free agents in the world. But the good news for us is that God's mercy and generosity toward us in Christ, those things are no more limited by our own fitness for them than they are bottlenecked through this inept priestly elite class that is here in the story in Palestine and Jesus' day. God's love and God's kingdom cannot be restrained. Jesus perceives that the scribes are outraged and even in their hearts that they're condemning him to this capital crime of blasphemy. And so he decides to respond by saying, which is easier? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. The man is healed, and everyone is amazed. And with that act, Jesus shows that what he's doing is not usurping authority from the religious establishment and simply claiming it for himself. But in fact, God is doing that. God is taking the authority from the religious establishment and vesting it in Jesus. God is doing something new in Jesus. And the healing of this man is the visible, tangible verification that Jesus' declaration of the forgiveness of sins has teeth. These aren't empty words of cheap compassion from some uninvolved party. These are weighty words spoken by God's appointed mouthpiece to declare on behalf of God himself that the offended party, God, has chosen to release the offender, this man, the crowd, you, me, of all your debts. Only the victim can truly grant forgiveness like that. And what Jesus is saying to this man and what Mark is wanting us to see, every one of us, is that God himself has chosen to absorb the cost of remaining in friendship with you, of remaining in friendship with me, of remaining in friendship with your neighbor. He has canceled your debt, your sins. He has done everything required for your full restoration to be in right relationship with him and his family. And there are no more hoops for you to jump through. This is what God has done in Jesus. And that is scandalous to the people who see themselves as brokers of God's mercy and forgiveness. 
And as the story unfolds in Mark's gospel, we'll learn a lot more about just how God does this, right? As Jesus goes to the cross, as he suffers and dies for the sins of the world, as he rises to new life on the other side of death into this whole new reality in which sin and sickness and death are no more, Jesus' holistic healing of this paralyzed man in this story is a picture of God's future breaking into the here and now in Jesus. It's not a blueprint necessarily of what you and I should expect in our ordinary life experience for all those who follow Jesus. Most of us will probably not experience this miraculous healing like this man on this side of the resurrection. Not to say it can't happen, only to say it usually does not, right? And lest we be embittered by the, hey, why did this guy get healed and not me? If Jesus is all about this healing business, why has he forgotten me? It's important that we recognize that this picture that we get is not necessarily a picture of the fullness of the kingdom coming to each and every one of us here and now, but of the fullness of the kingdom that will come and what it looks like to begin to take up a life of entering into it in friendship with Jesus. This is a picture of the kind of world God desires where justice and peace extend to the ends of the earth and to everyone in it. And Jesus says, come, and follow me into a world like that. I do think this image of the healed man, the walking man with his mat, the forgiven man carrying his canceled sins, is for us a picture of the life God calls us to live today in friendship with him. Not necessarily in expect physical healing now, but in the sense of carrying those things with us that are the tokens of God's healing touch in our lives. Notice that the man doesn't leave his mat lying on the floor. What does he do? He carries it with him. This thing that has carried him, he now carries. This thing that has been the mark of his shame and his exclusion from friendship with God and others is now this visible token of God's particular mercy that has touched his own particular broken life in an incredibly powerful way. And I'm struck by the similarity of Jesus' instruction to this man, take up your mat and go home, to his summons to all of his followers, take up your cross and follow me. The mat and the cross are both these instruments of shame and death that become transformed by Jesus into symbols of God's life-giving power. And this newly healed man, he walks through the crowd out of that house. He walks through the crowd, this crowd from whom he had been alienated for so long, and he doesn't just walk out into their midst as a person who can walk but as a person who can walk, who's carrying his mat as an evidence that his life has been touched by God. And it is this sight of his healed wound that becomes the place where those around him perceive the glory of God and are amazed. And I think the same is true for all of us who follow Jesus. What you and I have to offer others is really nothing other than what we need to experience ourselves. 
this healing and forgiveness of God that touches the real and particular places of sin and brokenness in our own lives. Not just ideas about God, not just concepts and life principles, but the real lived experience of life with God that changes us. How has your life been touched and transformed by God? What is the mat that you carry, so to speak, that makes your own life, your own experience of God, a means by which others may discover God in you? I want us to sit with that question this week. And if you have trouble answering it, if you have difficulty identifying ways that you have personally experienced God like that, let me encourage you to do two things. One, get near someone who can speak personally and compellingly about their own experience of God and listen to their story. Let them be the friend that carries you into the presence of Jesus. And the second thing is just this. Go help somebody. And as you do, look for God. Look for God in the person that you help and look for God in yourself as you become a friend like that. And at the end of the week, after we've all been doing this, I wonder, will we, like the crowd in this story, also be amazed, also be glorifying God, and also be saying we have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace, mercy, and love that you extend to us in Jesus. We thank you for the healing of forgiveness. We thank you that that's not just some abstract concept that we believe in with our heads, but that is the healing power of God that touches the real places in our lives, the places where we are stuck, the places where we are in anguish, the places where we've grown weary, our sickness, our sorrow, even our death. Thank you that your life and your love and your power cannot be restrained, but that they touch those real parts of our lives. And we ask that you would, in fact, do just that. Lead us deeper and deeper into the story of Christ, this friendship with you through him, friendship with one another as we gather together around this shared friendship with you through Jesus. Open our eyes to see the stories of your healing at work in the world. Open our eyes to see the opportunities you've given us, the people you've given us to love, the friends you've given us to carry us when we cannot carry ourselves. And make us a thankful, joyful people with compelling stories to savor and to share for our own good and for the good of our world, your world. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.